Welcome to the Design Imposter Podcast, where we unravel the enigmatic realm of imposter syndrome. My name's Monique Jenkins. And I'm Jessica Vallis. We're two agency owners who've boldly faced the reality of imposter syndrome. We'll share relatable stories and practical insights that empower designers and business owners just like you. Together, we'll help you conquer self-doubt and unleash your true potential. Get ready to unveil your true brilliance. Welcome to Design Imposter. Hello, and welcome back to the Design Imposter podcast. I'm Monique, and with me, as always, it is Jessica, my co-host. Today, we're going to be diving into a topic that every designer faces at some point, which is handling situations when a client doesn't like your design. This episode is a continuation of our discussion about client relationships and red flags. So let's get ready to unpack this one. Let's go, Monique. It's a challenging, but essential part of our work. This is where the true test of professionalism comes into play, especially for our young or burned out designers. Are you cool headed enough to accept criticism and feedback on something that you feel like you've put your blood, sweat and tears into? I agree. It's a tough conversation, Uh, but it's bound to happen to us all. I do remember the first client um, critique that I got and how I felt about it. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. You and I really kicked off our friendship from our love, or I guess enjoyment, of the critique phase of our master's program. Um, every time we would present a piece of work, the entire class would review each other's stuff. We'd maybe print it out or have it on a computer. We'd have pieces of paper where people could write down anonymous you know, comments, or it would be up on the big screen, and we'd just say, like, hey, this looks phallic, or hey, I love this, don't like that. And... Uh, a lot of people didn't appreciate this phase, um, but when we were doing it, we didn't view it, the critique, as these people have no taste, but instead it was more of a, what can I do to improve my work? And I'm not sure about you, but when I didn't receive any feedback at all after you know working on something for a full week, I was so disappointed. Yeah. Uh, it's always weird when someone says like, oh, it's fine, because you're like, no, it's not. Like, fix it. It's not fine. I've been looking at this for like a week and I know that something's wrong. I just can't exactly endpoint it. Um, but yeah, we we really did enjoy critique, love critique. Uh, we critique a bunch of designs that we see out in the world. We text each other all the time about that. Um, and speaking of critiquing things, we're in the process of creating our logo for CCC um, and I was showing it to my mom and my husband, my sister, and um, they were picking which one they like the best or whatever the case is as we like narrow down this process. And I was like, oh, crap, I haven't looked for phallic symbols yet. <laughs> Let me do that. And my mom was like, what? And I was like, yeah, you have to look for phallic symbols and designs. And then we went down this whole path. We like pulled up all these Disney movies that have like phallic symbols in the background and logos and stuff. And she was like, I have never looked for that, Monique. Get your mind out of the gutter. I don't understand why people are looking for those. I was like, sorry, mom. If you don't see it, somebody else will. Everything can be misconstrued. <laughs> she was like, yeah, I've never. She was like, I have never even thought about that. And Brian's like, yeah. What did he call it? He called it something wildly inappropriate that I will not repeat here. But maybe I will. Stay tuned <laughs> at the end. I'm telling you about it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was like, 
the idea to her of like looking like critiquing a design in that way she was like yeah i know like you critique like the colors and the fonts and stuff like that but critiquing based on phallic symbols that you see she was like i never would have saw it or even like considered this as like an option it was hilarious all right so what do you have for us monique how can we approach handling client feedback so uh I would say the first thing, uh, there's a moment of truth. So when you present your design and you have, you know, all the nerves and you've overprocessed everything, like the what it should have could have moments in your mind and you start walking through those things with your client um, and the client isn't exactly thrilled. Um, I don't know what uh, my first move always is, but Jessica, what's your first move? So they say, I hate this. Or, Oof, I hate it. I just like this design. It isn't what we discussed. This isn't a representation of my First business. of all, I start by reviewing what we've discussed previously in regard to a design brief or a mood board and how I came up with the concept. Then I follow up by asking targeted questions to clarify their concerns with the design. But a lot of times if I'm doing something like a logo redesign or even a website redesign, when I do the before, like when I do the grand reveal, I always pull up what they had to start with and be like, okay, so this is your logo before. And now here are the logo drafts I've come up with. And then um, sometimes if it's like, a complete rebrand. We're starting from scratch for everything. I'll even review the mood board ahead of time. Be like, okay, so based on our conversation, these were the points that we discussed. And you'll see this reflected in our, either our conversation reflected in the design. Um, but if there's like, no, this isn't really it, then, you know, it comes back to asking more questions um, and reviewing what we had discussed before. Because if that wasn't on the mark, then clearly somebody missed a step and, you know, it's going to come down to me as the designer. Yeah. I think this is a, a really difficult part of the process. Uh, even when you're, when it's happening with the best of intentions and you've done all the research beforehand, there's no guarantee that the client is going to love the design that you come up with. And it's really important to get to the root of the problem. Uh, and that's going to come with a lot of questions and narrowing in on what they actually don't like. I, I sometimes like when someone says like, I don't like something, they can't really articulate what they don't like about it. And I think that's incredibly important. Is it the font? Is it the, you know, colors? Is it like, it, it, there has to be something specific that you don't like. If you just don't like it and generally, then we're starting from scratch. Maybe there's an element that you're not fond of. We just went through that process. Like the three, you know, logo options that we got for CCC. I, I love the first one. I knew neither one of us was going to like the second one. And I knew Jessica was going to like the third one because I just know how our <laughs> minds work. In my head, I, I gave Ryan the list. I was like, I'm going to love this one. Jessica's going to hate it. We're ne neither of us are going to be too fond of this one. And the third one, she's going to like. And I was like, and I feel like, meh about it. Like, I like it. I was like, but I like the first one better. And then I was like, but I know that these like little elements around it don't work. They don't size up well. They don't size down well for business cards. And we have to think about those things. Um, so I think like helping and, and we had a conversation about it. And, and I think that conversation was like, what exactly don't you like? OK, well, all these gestures and stuff like that don't feel uh, like they connect with our audience segment or don't feel like they should be a part of the final design. That's what you're trying to hone in on with your client is what exactly about this don't they like? Don't let them give you generalities. Um, and then, like Jessica said, 
revert back to what you guys had already discussed, whether that's, hey, these are the mood boards that you gave me. These these are the concepts that you told me you like. These are the competitors that we looked at. This is what you said. And then maybe they'll come back and say, you know what? Maybe it's too similar. Maybe like I don't want to be in such close competition with my audience. Like sometimes when you think about, I don't know, banking or something like that, you think, you know, banking is going to be probably blue or something in the blue like color line because blue is like loyalty and like confidence and, and stuff like that when it comes to business. So like you find older potential companies with those type of color schemes. If you're a newer company and you want to differentiate yourself, you might not want to go down that path, even though those are what you supplied as samples of best practices for your specific business. So that's how I think. So we're even though we're designers, Monique and I have decided that we were not going to design our own logo. And this a lot of marketing and design agencies do this because we put so much thought and it it would just drive us apart. Like so we hired somebody, uh, Andre, he put the logos together. And when we were in our consultation phase, we gave him an overview of the company, what direction we wanted to go to. And then Monique said, I'm going to start up these Pinterest boards and then we'll pin what we like. So it was really nice when Andre presented the logos, he had different sections of the Pinterest boards to demonstrate. I cho- I, I like these elements. They are what inspired this. So then you can see like, okay, yeah, I did pin this, but now that I see it as this, I can understand, okay, it's not going to work for us in this thing. Um, and this just serves to demonstrate the importance of having a design exercise prior to actually designing. I have a questionnaire that asks, you know, what the client is looking for, their personal likes and dislikes. And then it's followed up by a, a niche exercise with the client to help identify their audience segment. Because if we can't understand these elements, we can't understand what the client likes, we can't understand their niche prior to designing, we have a much larger chance um, of falling short of the client's expectations. So they need to know what they want in order for us to know what they want. Exactly. We talked about that before, how important, and maybe we should do a separate podcast episode on the questions that you need to ask to get to the right design decisions. Um, But we've talked about that before. It's incredibly important in the project brief phase to really truly understand nuances about the client because that will help you to deter or deter you from going down paths that they just don't see as being viable. Um, And as many conversations as you can have, as much of their personality, their tone, the way they carry themselves, the way that they talk about their business, as much of that as you can gather will be incredibly helpful. Um, And you coming back with something for them that is actually what they are intending or want or need. And sometimes people don't know that. And it takes those questions to help them narrow down what they're actually looking to do. So you just have to keep that in mind. Do you have an example for us on a time when somebody said, no, nah, I don't like this. Like, what do you do in that moment? Uh, people always tell me they don't like it. Um, <laughs> uh, I have gotten, I, I got advice from, I feel like it might've been one of our professors at the University of Baltimore about um, always presenting a client with three options. Uh, one that you love, one that you know they will love or that you think they will love, and then one that's an, a middle or in-between element. Um, so I always try to do that. I try to do one that I love, um, one that the client is going to love, and then one that there is a healthy balance between the two options. I will say generally what happens is 
we get to a place where like one of them is crap and we just X that one out and the other two have a blend of what they're actually looking for. It's never the second option. I don't know why, but it ain't, okay? But <laughs> you take some elements from your first option, some elements from the third option, and you come up with this like, you know, amalgamation of what they actually want and what it is intended to be. I also think that it's incredibly important for you to showcase designs in a multitude of perspectives. So like, don't show someone just some, like a blank logo on a, a like a white page or something like that. Show them in context to like the environment in which this design is going to live so that they can see their product. They can see the elements in front of them. So if I was doing a redesign or, or building out a logo for a perfume company, I would put the logo on a bottle of perfume. I would put it on, you know, like store shelves so that they can see it in construct of this like larger vision that they have. Sometimes it goes down a little bit easier if you do it in that way versus just showing them something that's devoid of like any other like elements around it. You can show them just the logo by itself, but I think that you have to get playful and creative with your presentation so that they can see you know, how this looks on a t-shirt or a tote bag or whatever the case is. You're not going to do that for 50 different logo options, but one that you think is the best or one or two, I think that's probably fine. I want to 100% endorse the idea of three options. And three options is at a minimum. When I was working at Wells Fargo, my boss would ask for something and I was like, this doesn't really follow branding, but okay, I'll do. And I learned over time, do one option exactly how they asked. Do another option the way that you were taught by the branding department to make something. And then do like a couple variations that blend the two or, you know, a couple other variations of the branding one. So I think there were times I'd prevent like present five or like six or seven different options. And just I think it was like, you know, a matter of pride or principle. They always choose the one that is the direct request then they choose other versions as well like they'll choose the one that's like right on brand and then they choose one that's like a little slightly off but it's still very much branded and then as you go through the additional rounds of revisions they start to abandon their original thought process of it because you've kind of talked to them about it they can, they're seeing their literal idea versus what you know would work so once they've and I would print these designs out and they'd just sit on a big table and everyone would walk around and look at them. So when you have it on a table and your boss is walking back and forth, you know, 10 times a day and peering over and looking at them, she's got time or he has time to look at them and um, think about it a little bit instead of just giving a quick yes or no. So the more options you can provide, I think it just leads to a, a better result. And sometimes, I mean, I've seen at bigger companies where they have 200 logo options to present. It's incredibly overwhelming, but it's a part of the process. Sometimes people design 200, 500 versions of a logo. It's not unheard of. It just is what it is. Uh, I would hate to be a part of that world, but it does happen uh, more frequently than not, where you have a multitude of options for a really big company and you have to give them that so that they can see the diversity in their own branding. Um, Jessica, how do you distinguish between helpful criticism and mere like difference in taste. Okay. So constructive criticism or constructive feedback usually comes with specific points like reordering text, swapping images, or explaining their view. Here's a real life example. During the first draft logo presentation, I presented a few options and the client said, 
This reminds me of the star of life on the side of an ambulance building. This was incredibly insightful compared to I don't like it. She knew that the symbol or the logo mark I had put on a logo reminded her of something else and she was able to identify it. So instead of just saying like, I feel like I've seen this before, she's like, it reminds me of something on a medical van. And that's why I don't like this one. I'm like, okay, I get that. Now that you've said that, because we as designers, we look at things for so long that sometimes we don't see those things, which is why Monique said earlier, you've got to do the phallic test. (laughs) At the end of it, you've got to do the phallic test. Um, But if it's an issue about personal taste, um, addressing feedback requires a different approach. Hopefully you've done your research prior to designing and you can justify your decisions and realign the design with the client's aesthetic while maintaining its design integrity. So this goes back to what I was saying about um, having a couple versions, the one that your boss asked for exactly how they wanted it, and then coming up with the other versions um, and then try to figure out what it is that they didn't like about, you know, the ones that are branded. What about you, Monique? When, when have you received a, I don't like it feedback? And how did you uh, respond? All the time. Uh, I, sometimes I'm like, that's a you problem, not a me problem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think as designers, you get those, I don't like it, comments more often than not in some respects, um, which I think are, it's helpful because it lets you know what pa- the path that you're going down is inviolable and that you can course correct. Uh, but I worked at a financial publisher in Baltimore and we would do campaigns every week and which means that we had to be thinking of new logo concepts basically on a weekly cadence logo concepts book cover designs and things like that um and um I I think I handled it as best as I could for where I was in my career I think it was hard because the client wasn't able to articulate what they didn't like. Like your client was able to say, hey, this is what it reminds me of and give you like a clear pointed example. My client was like, I don't like it, but I don't know what I don't like about it. I can't like articulate that. I don't know what that means. And um, I guess the most pointed example of that is at the financial publisher, again, building local concepts out every week. And we had a couple of different uh, projects because we're turning things around so quickly. Uh, But the one that I think I remember is we were building uh, a logo for a product called The Rich Investor. And it was supposed to be like investment, like the pros. And we had like, I don't know, four or five different guru, financial gurus. And I had to get consensus between all of them and none of them liked the the same thing. They liked the same colors. They liked the same fonts. They didn't like the same anything. But it was a... uh, weekly like news subscription that you had to that we pushed out weekly news subscription like I said um and each week it was going to be a different financial advisor that took on a specific topic and it took a long time to like turn around this logo concept like way longer than what the deadline was for the project but like we just kept tweaking things in the end we simplified it so much more than I thought we were. It ended up only really being typography and then some like block elements that stood behind the photography, um, that the logos, which kind of like knocked out. But um, that was probably the most difficult logo project that I've ever worked on, even though it is the most simplistic looking logo. Like when it was all said and done, I was like, we did all of this for some type and some blocks and that's where we are. 
But like for them, it was amazing. They were like, oh my God, this is amazing. I can't believe you finally got there. I'm like, yeah, me neither. Um, so <laughs> things like that um, have happened to me pretty frequently in my career. But I think in the beginning, it was probably my fault because I wasn't as specific with the project brief and I wasn't gaining all that additional like hindsight context from clients. You, you need to be really generous with client feedback too. And I mean, regardless of the size of your client, clients get really excited when they can be involved in the process. You're, when you present something right out the gate and they're like, this is perfect, I love it. Like that happens very seldom. Yeah. But when they can be involved um, and they, I mean, sometimes they do know best. Uh, and for as many times as I wanted to scoff and grumble and, you know, I got to suck up my pride because come on, it sucks when you've worked on something and it's not approved. Um, there have been an equal number of times they made a recommendation and that little bit of feedback greatly improved the project. So yeah. sometimes having them say, you know, can you, what if you wrap this to the next line or, you know, I think this is too big or I think this or could you add this element? And you're like, you know what? You know your industry better than me. You know your business better than me. We could do all the exercise in the world, but you're always going to miss something. And I've had times where the client makes a recommendation and they say, actually, I think this. And you listen and the results are far better than if you had just done it alone and decided, you know, my pride is more important. I have to do this by myself. The client yep. doesn't know better. So you have to be really generous about the client feedback. Yeah. Speaking of client feedback and, and, and having them be a part of the process, how do you find um, or how do you balance between the client's requests and your design principles? Because I think there have been some times in my career where the client has asked me to do something. This isn't specific to logos, but like design in general, maybe you're designing a web page or something like that, where you know that it's problematic and they want you to do it because they know that it, you know, increases conversion. So there's a whole like design, um, there's a whole like design, uh, what do they call it? Oh gosh, I can't think of the name of it. Dark design patterns. There's like a whole dark design pattern like side of the internet, which is like horrible principles as a designer that you know uh, you should not be doing, but are incredible, incredibly um, uh, helpful in conversion just sort of like bad practice. How do you deal with the client's request to do something like that and design principles that you know are right or wrong? I believe in explaining the rationale behind each design decision that I make. It's about meeting the client halfway, ensuring that the design remains effective and true to professional standards, um, but also being able to back your research and say, this is what I, you know, I've seen other companies do. This is what I know to be best practices um, you know, I'm happy to show you examples or, um, I mean, I've even pulled up like, this is what your competition does. And then we'll pull up side by side of like, you know, this is what I've come up for you. And this is why I think this design works better. And you had mentioned like the financial blues. Blue is everywhere. It is so hard to get clients to break out of that blue. And I think some of the, the best designs for finance are the ones who do end up getting away from the blue. So I'm working on a, a logo redesign project right now. And I was like, okay, so here are all your competition. And you're going to notice they all have the same shade of dark blue. And they're like, oh, yeah, I never really noticed this before. I was like, yeah, I don't think you need to navigate away from blue because you've painted your entire office this color. And um, like, 
it goes back to the roots of your company when you first started. But I was like, I think we can probably tweak the shade a little bit. So it does not look like every other financial firm. Or like, I was like, they all use this big, thick, ultra heavy sans serif. I was like, so let's try using this instead. Um, As far as like dark principles, I don't, I don't really know. I don't think my clients have really been like, um, I don't know. What would you say is like a, a like a, a popular dark principle? Uh, I have a perfect example of this. Uh, I worked at a hospitality uh, company, like a hotel. So think like, I don't know, Marriott or something like that. A, or Expedia, whatever. Um, they always have that like counter on the uh, website that says like, you know, 15 people just booked or book in the next t- 10 minutes to get a discount. That, no, it's a lie. It's not. It's just a, it's a backend code. Every 10 minutes, it resets itself. You're not getting a discount. It's just something that increases the urgency in purchasing because they want you to purchase. There, there doesn't have, there's no logic. There's no rhyme or reason. That's considered like a dark design pattern, which is you're creating urgency on the customer's behest when there is no sense of urgency because this is just a made up number. Whether it's 20 minutes or 15 minutes, oh, you have the next 15 minutes to purchase before the price changes. All of that is a lie. So that's a dark design pattern that I've experienced in my career where someone has been like, oh, well, everyone else is already doing this. And I'm like, just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean that we need to contribute to that because you know, from the customer's perspective, you are per- you are pushing them to p- potentially do something that they can't afford right this second. Or, um, and, and like the likelihood that someone's going to come back and continuously check the price on this one site versus like going to another site or whatever the case is, is pretty low um, or not as common. But people do things like that in like hospi- in the hospitality industry all the time and in other industries. Oh, you have 10 minutes to, you know, get this promotional offer before it expires or something like that. You see those things all the time on Instagram, on people's websites and things like that. They're just made up numbers. They don't mean anything. As we're talking, I'm like looking up dark design principles. And I think <laughs> I got I to gotta work on the keywords with this because it's like everything keeps coming up as dark mood, like violating like dark mood principles. I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't really think so. I was um, say, uh, there's a website called deceptive.design. Um, it has a bunch of different like types of dark design patterns. So um, fake urgency, forced action, um, hard to cancel. Planet Fitness is known for this one, which is like you can't cancel their subscription online. You have to physically go into. Oh, I know. Freaking hate more. that. I when the woman t- and she I, like when she told me that I had to go into the store, but also I had to go to the store in which I signed up in order to, I said, what if I had moved out of state? What if I had moved out of state? She's like, well, you can send us a letter in the mail and we'll get to it. Ma'am, I don't, I, I was so angry. I, I was like, cancel, cancel it right now. And I, I mean, like I had planning fitness for probably about three or four years and never used it just because it was so difficult to cancel. All right. So now that I'm looking at this list of comparison prevention, Confirm shame, uh, shaming, uh, disguised ads, fake scarcity, fake social proof, fake urgency, forced action, hard to cancel. I can proudly say that I have not been put in a situation like this. And I think if I was, I would need to have a conversation with the client because this is not aligned with my values. 
as much as I know when you go on Expedia and they say book this flight now, now's the time to go, go, go. Um, if it's not the time to go, 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 and you know, they're just trying to make a sale. I don't know. But I mean, I work with financial clients. You you have to be careful. They cannot do this stuff or they nope. go to court. So yeah. um that kind of also goes into the niche. So I guess I don't have a really good example of it because if my clients get caught doing any of these, then uh, you know, goodbye business license. <laughs> yeah. Like the one that uh, always bothers me is like fake scarcity, where it's like, we only have three t-shirts left in stock. No, you don't. You have 150,000 t-shirts. You're fine. Okay. You don't have to say You can reprint at any moment. It's a (laughs) t-shirt. Exactly. I'm like, it's it's probably fine. But even like something as simple as like lowest cost. I I found this a lot too. Uh, Like uh, Ticketmaster is like famous for this. It's like, oh, your ticket costs $300, but then you have like 17 fees on top of that so then your ticket ends up costing you six hundred dollars and you're like wait a minute what are these fees like a service fee a fulfillment fee a, hey today's tuesday fee like th- those things are stupid they don't have to do those things it is a tactic to drive up the price so you might see a low rate for a ticket but then a hundred dollars in fees later that's unfair to the consumer um but i've worked yeah. in a lot of industries where i've seen dark design patterns and people continue to use them because they are effective. There is something effective about, you know, Black Friday is the same thing. Black Friday just happened. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, saying like, oh, this is on sale for this limited amount of time. So if you don't purchase now, you're never going to get it. It's not. Okay. You look at the price tag from last week and the week after, it's the same exact price. But the idea that something is on sale compels people to go and purchase. The idea that there's scarcity involved in this makes you know people want to get it it's why people well it's why they get into these like fights and arguments over tvs or like stupid stuff outside um that's all a part of like those deceptive design patterns um that happen in real life consistently uh that people just don't realize i think as consumers it's important to be educated as well like leading to black friday i'm looking at my cart and i'm like okay uh here's one example I found this uh, suitcase for kids and it converts into a scooter, right? And I saw like different versions of it on TikTok and I found a good one. It was like 125 or, you know, whatever. And I sent it to my friend in Germany. I was like, oh, look at this, like 125. And then the next day started the Black Friday sale and it went down to 85. Now, I didn't, did I buy it? No, because I am stupid. But um, I was like, okay, I saw the price difference. But then, Something I had purchased earlier in the year came up in my feed and was like, oh, this is on sale. And I was like, I don't remember spending $100 for this product. And I looked and I was like, nope, that's because I spent 60 So, <laughs> like, they will get you. It's Just because it's a sale doesn't mean it's a sale. So you have yeah. to be informed as clients or consumers as well. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think I uh, was reading something or watching something on probably Instagram uh, where a woman was saying that there is a Amazon price uh, tracker. So you can see, you know, the price of an item over the course of a year so that you know if the price is genuinely lower or if it's just something that they're saying for like marketing purposes. Um, And I think that she found on Black Friday and Cyber Monday and Christmas and all these other things that prices aren't really lower. They're the same price. And uh, there are random pockets, maybe on like Amazon, like Prime Day or something like that, where the price is actually maybe five or ten dollars lower, not crazy lower, but just lower nonetheless. So um, 
I always think about those things because I've worked with so many different clients that like, hey, you know, you kind of have to figure out what patterns don't work or or work for you and try to convince the client that that's not an, an active path to go down when you are designing something. All right. This could in itself be a whole nother podcast episode. So yeah. let's move on to the next thing, which is standing your ground. So uh, there are times where you have to stand firm on a design element. How do you handle those situations? I think when a client's request might detract from the design's effectiveness, it's important to articulate why certain elements are key. It's about advocating for the design while considering the client's perspective. And don't be afraid to explain your rationale. If my client doesn't understand a design choice, I'll explain if something is not considered best practices anymore or if there's newer tech to improve the user experience. So um, a client was like, I really want to use this form. And I'm like, I would like to see you upgrade this then. You, you know, get through the Christmas season and we need to upgrade this platform because it is not best practices. Nobody uses this. They don't have good support. I know you've been using it for 10 years, but we have to move on to the next thing so you can get higher conversion. Or um, for some reason, everyone's always opposed to white space. They're like, everything's just so spaced out. Like, why is it like this? I'm like, well, because you're letting your content tell a story. If I'm browsing through all this content and everything is bunched together, I can't, my eyes can't find the keywords and the points of your product or your service that I'm looking for. So you have to let it breathe and tell a story. Everyone is just so afraid. They're like, there's just this extra bit of white space that I'm not sure of. Can the logo be made bigger to fill it in? And I'm like, just, just let it rest. Just let it be clean. People like clean. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, clients are obsessed with filling the space with something. Uh, I don't think that you have to fill the space with something. I think effective white space is effective for a reason. Uh, you could think about the apples of the world. I know that everyone always says apple when you say white space. Um, but there are companies who do it really well. And you have to give the user's eyes some time to breathe and digest the information that is actually important. If there is stuff everywhere, that means that your eyes don't know where to look. Um, which means that they potentially miss something. So you just have to think about that. Um, I just saw something, it was like a video or a meme or something. And it was like, why are millennials all about minimalism and white kitchens and clear countertops? And it was like, because we had hoarder parents. And like it pans to the kitchens from like the 1980s and the 1990s. And there's just tons of stuff on the counters. And there's like, so many different colors on the curtains and it's just it's so overwhelming so um our generation is just like i can't we, we've had so much clutter entire lives i just want something clean and slick and now if you go back to those hoarder parents they still exist so there are two audience segments here so again know your niche um <laughs> um yeah, I don't know where I was going with this, but it felt important to add to the conversation. Uh, I will add to, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this, but um, I, I will say I'm one of the people who's like, I'm sick of the white kitchens. Like, we got to get back to some, we got to add some color, some style. Oh, I don't do white. Into our space. If I have a um, white wall in my house, I'm usually going with like a dark color, like a dark blue, a dark green, uh, a lot of dark greens in my house. It's it's getting repetitive. Every house I've lived in, I have the same colors, dark blue. 
dark greens. <laughs> yeah, I just I'm so sick of my kitchen. Uh, a, a little introducing a little color is fine, guys. Um, all of that to say, uh, to kind of sum up this episode, handling criticism and navigating client preferences are integral to the design process. It's about communication, it's about understanding, and sometimes it is compromised. So don't think that, you know, you're the designer, you know best, and that you can't compromise with the client. It is theirs at the end of the day. You are relinquishing control of this thing, and they're going to put it in whatever context that they see fit, and you will never have to probably look at it again, depending on how big or small the client is. So uh, think about that. Continue to compromise, uh, and you'll find out whatever the best solutions are. Yeah. And if you're not particularly proud of something that you've done because you don't feel like it's yours anymore or you did make compromises that you just don't stand by, um, don't put it in your portfolio. Yeah. Nobody has to know. Uh, so thank you to our listeners for joining us on the Design Imposter podcast. Stay tuned for more insights into the ever-evolving world of design. As we wrap up our captivating journey on today's episode of Design Imposter, we want to leave you with an empowering message. Self-doubt may be a universal experience, but it should never define your worth or potential. Embrace the power of your unique voice, trust in your intuition and abilities, and continue creating fearlessly. Remember, you belong in this space and your contributions are immensely valuable. Know that you are never alone on this journey. We stand by your side, ready to support and celebrate you and your business every step of the way. Thank you for joining us today and being an essential part of the Design Imposter community. Don't forget to subscribe, follow us at Design Imposter Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and leave a review to help other imposters find us. Until we meet again, keep those headphones ready.